Amen. Well, if you did not hear from the, the news, there was a, a, another mass shooting uh, yesterday in, in New York. And based on what we know about the, the shooter and the manifesto he issued online, it was a racially motivated attack. It was an expression of white supremacy and just absolute wickedness. Seems like these occurrences just happen so frequently, we almost become numb when there's another mass shooting, another act of evil. And often the question we're asking and everybody fixates on is what are the motivations of the people who did this and you know, what were, who were the victims and what was going on here with this? We we're faced with all of these tragedies and I think we ask the very natural question, why? Yeah, we, in my lifetime, had 9-11. Just the, man, tragedy and massive loss of life. We have this reminder every time you turn on the news to see this war in Ukraine where civilians are being, being murdered and, and hospitals are being bombed. And we, we say, why? why? Why is this going on in our world? Why are there these tragedies? You might even know loved ones who have been lost their lives in a tragedy and in, in, in great evil. And just the grief and the pain. And by the way, let me say this to you, if that, that is you. Jesus, we just sang about it, is a... Savior of great compassion, who says, run to me with that, that pain. I, too, had grief. The one who wept at Lazarus' tomb. It's not just weeping as sort of a tawdry display of emotion, but weeping because he sees the brokenness and the fallenness, and he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But we ask, why? Why does this happen? And I think the simple answer is, well, we live in a, in a fallen world. But sometimes there's the sneaking suspicion in our hearts that you know, bad things happen because, well, well the, somehow people deserved it. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they were in these, they made these decisions, and they were somehow deserving of, of this kind of evil and this kind of suffering. Well, Luke 13 presents a situation like that. We're confronted with a couple of examples of tragedies, of uh, horrific loss of life, and Jesus really ad- addresses that issue head on. Jump into your Bibles with me in Luke chapter 13. We'll read the first few verses, Luke 13, beginning in verse 1. And they were present at that season, at that very time, some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said to them, now notice he's answering, presuming there's a question in that statement. They're coming, hey, Jesus, did you hear about what what happened? And he knows, okay, there's a question in your mind. The the question in your mind is, did they deserve this? Was this, this judgment? What's going on? Jesus answering said to them, verse 2, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? In other words, do you think this happened to them because they were really bad people? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Another example are those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Jesus pivots from the question about tragedy to the question about repentance. He's saying, no, 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 these tragedies did not happen because those people deserved it or they were somehow more wicked than other people. Rather, in those tragedies, we should not be thinking about, well, what about those people who experienced that? I should be asking my own heart. If that were me, if I were gunned down in 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 a shopping center, if I had a tower fall on me, if... I were in a war zone and died. What, what about my soul? Am I, am I right with God? This message of repentance is one that's really not uh, popular today. Um, 
And many have presented and received an incomplete gospel message that does not include what Jesus includes here, this call to repentance. We understand this, right, that oftentimes getting a message incomplete is to not actually get the message. You ever try to put in a, a, an address in the GPS and you didn't get the street name? Like, you know, 1,000... Okay, what is it? I can't read my handwriting. Something street or what has happened in our neighborhood? People have gotten Southern Oaks Road or Trail instead of Southern Oaks Court, and they end up in a different, a different street at some stranger's house. I don't know if someone's actually gone knocking on the door being like, this Bible study here tonight, these people are like, who are you? Uh, but you get an impartial message can kind of lead you astray. Many have heard about Jesus, but not about sin. Many have learned about grace, but not about guilt. Many have accepted Jesus, but they have not repented. And you see, in our modern-day world of prosperity, gospel preaching, of shallow conversions, of entertainment masquerading as worship, Jesus' sober call in this passage is as urgent now as it was then. We're in the middle of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Verse 1 begins, there's people present at that time. Jesus just finished Luke chapter 12. He's on the road to the cross. The moment is urgent. The, the Pharisees and their hostility is growing. We're just weeks, maybe months away from Golgotha, from Calvary, from the cross. And the lines between those who follow Jesus and those who don't are becoming clearer. And we saw last week that Jesus makes this abundantly clear. My coming brings division. My coming requires decision. You can tell the face of the sky. You can't tell the times. It's time to be reconciled to God. And it's in that context that he makes this call, that the, that the moment is becoming more urgent, that the season is becoming more dangerous, that he says, you must repent. Indeed, the very fate of the nation hangs in the balance. The nation could go receive Jesus as Messiah or reject him, and they're going to choose the latter course with cataclysmic consequences on them. The call is very clear. Unless you repent, you shall perish. And you notice that he's got the word all. This is not just for some people. This is for all of us. So the, the message today is very, very simple. Jesus demands every single one of us repent and trust in him. Every one of us. He said, well, I, I, I'm a Christian. I'm good to go. Listen, the Christian life begins with repentance, and the Christian life is repentance. We begin the Christian life with an initial turning to Jesus, and every step of the Christian life is repentance of turning from sin and pursuing holiness with all of our hearts. So I say that at the outset to say this. You say, well, I'm already a believer. This is for you know, someone who comes in who's not a believer. Turn the searchlight onto your heart. Say, what are the areas of my life where repentance is needed? And if you say, I don't need it, we have fallen into the trap of which First John talks about. If I say we, I have no sin, you have deceived yourself and you're saying God is a liar. Remaining indwelling sin is with every Christian. The running to Christ is not just an initial come to him, but it is running back to him over and over Again, so go through the, this, this section. We're going to go down through verse 9. I want to see some of the perspectives here on repentance. The first perspective is this. It's sort of the perspective that mankind has on repentance. And here's the, here's the universal response when we hear repentance is to sort of minimize it. Make it a small deal or sort of like in the, you know, you got your computer open and you minimize the window. You make it sort of disappear. We see repentance minimized. We minimize repentance in a couple of ways. And one of those ways is what we see here in the text. Jesus has been giving this stirring call in, in Luke chapter 12 to say, judgment is coming. You need to be reconciled to God. And there's people who are like, hey, Jesus, did you hear about those people who Pilate murdered? Sort of like, 
they're the ones you're talking about, right, Jesus? Like, it's obviously not us. We're good, moral, upstanding citizens. Those people went to the temple. Pilate had them murdered while they were sacrificing. What a gory scene. And their blood flows down and mixes with the blood of their sacrifice. Man, that's a horrific scene. We've got this Roman atrocity here as these people come with breaking news. And the sense here is these people come running up to Jesus breathlessly. Jesus, did you, did you hear about what happened down there in Jerusalem? Pontius Pilate, of course, a historical figure. He was the Roman governor of Judea. He was hated. He was, made some real bad decisions. He tried to bring in some, uh, some legionary banners into Jerusalem that had the sign of the imperial cult on them. Big no-no to Jewish people who hate idolatry. He went and had some Samaritans murdered. And people were sending off hot letters back to Rome being like, you've got to get rid of this guy. Last thing the Romans want is a rebellion in the province. And eventually, after the time of Jesus, the Romans kick him out. They get rid of him. So while we don't have a record of this event in you know, Josephus, this totally fits what we know about Pilate. He does horrible things like this all the time. This would have been not only a horrific act of violence, but it would have been an act of sacrilege. They're in their offering sacrifices. That's a place where you know, Roman soldiers, Gentiles, are persona non grata, and in they come, slashing and stabbing with their Roman gladius, murdering these people. What, what a gory scene this was. This is shocking on many levels. Sacrilege, murder, violence, oppression. What a scene. And Jesus answers. There, there's a question behind that statement. Some of the people make sta- make, ask questions when they're really making a statement. Well, you know, people want to promulgate some weird conspiracy theory. I'm not, I'm not making I'm just asking questions. Like, yeah, just take the question mark away. We know what you're saying, right? And sometimes people will make a statement when there's really a question. And the question lying behind this is, so, you know, were those Galileans, were they, they had that coming to them, right? This was a common assumption in the first century. In John chapter 9, there's this blind man, this man born blind. And the disciple says, okay, Jesus, did this man sin or his parents that he was born blind? They're thinking bad things are the result of, you know, you, you, you sin against God and judgment falls on you in this life. I'm in the, in the book of Job right now in my devotions. Let me just give you a little sampling of this thinking in Job. We know the story of Job. He is a righteous, godly man. Satan attacks him. Horrible things happen. Then all his friends come along. And Job 4 verse 7 kind of gives you the, the thought that they just recapitulate for 20 chapters. Remember, I pray thee, Job 4 verse 7, whoever perished being innocent... Or where were the righteous cut off? For I have seen they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Or over in chapter 8, we get a different speaker. Bildad says this, If thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their transgressions, if thou wouldest seek God, thou would make thy supplication to the Almighty, God would forgive. Verse 20 of that same chapter, Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers. So the assumption is very simple, that Jesus' audience had bad things happen to bad people. Really, really bad things happen to these people while they're offering these sacrifices. Obviously, they're the ones who need to get right with God, not me. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners? Most of his audience would have been like, yep, they probably were. We, We don't know about them, but they probably did something horrible, some secret sin, and God has brought the hammer down on them. You see, if they could maintain that these victims were really, really bad sinners... Listen, if we're we're all sinners, we all need to repent. But if I can say, well, those guys over there, they're the really bad ones. You see what I just did? Now I am morally superior. I'm not really the one in the target of this call to repentance. It's other people who do it. So when I say repentance minimized, one of the chief ways that people minimize repentance is to minimize sin. If I can say that the, the people who need to repent 
well, it's those people out there, but I'm good. Then I can say, uh, you know, repent. I don't, I don't need to deal with that messiness of repentance. If there's no sin, then there's no need to repentance. What Jesus said in Matthew 9, says those who are whole don't need a doctor. Those who are well don't need a doctor. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's only one group of people who need to repent, and it is sinners. And if I can sort of take myself out of that group and be like, well, you know, it's for other people, then I can minimize repentance. Jesus has been laying it on very thick in, in Luke 12. And if you've been with us, you know that man, it's really in your face and anxiety and hypocrisy and all these sins. But if I can say, yeah, but what about them? then I can minimize the need in my own heart to repent. People do the same thing today, don't they? We get really, really good at pointing out other people's sins in order to take the focus off of ours. You get pulled over for speeding. You're like, officer, I was only going 10 over. Somebody flew by me going 100, right? Like, obviously, I'm not a lawbreaker. They are. Or we can say, if you're on the left, Hey, the problems aren't with me. It's all those people who are racists, all part of the systemic system. They're the bad people, all those bad racists. Or if you're on the right, it's all those bad leftists. They need to repent. They need to get right. Or it's those Russians. Man, they're the really bad people. Or it's those you fill in the blank. If I can say there's a group of people who are way worse than I am, and by the way, I'm not denying the fact that there are you know, different kinds of sins. All sin is serious. But here's the point. If I'm trying to point the finger to redirect The call of repentance, I am minimizing the call to repentance. Here's another way that repentance gets minimized. It gets simply redefined. We can redefine it to where it's not quite as radical, it's not quite as demanding. Then I can say, well, I've already already done that, or I don't really need to do that because I've just so minimized it and gutted it of meaning that I don't need it. Now, what is repentance? The idea of repentance is a change of heart with reference to sin, that results in a change of life. It's very, very clear we're dealing with sin here, right, in this context. Do you think they were were sinners unless you repent? Uh, Repentance is in reference to sin. Sins individually that I commit, the sin nature that I have, the guilt that I have as a sinner who's a descendant of Adam. Biblically speaking, repentance is a change of heart that results in a change of life. That's why John the Baptist in in Luke chapter 3, verse 8 says, Bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. The changed life, let me be very clear, is not the repentance. It is the result of repentance. Repentance is the change of heart, the change of attitude, the change of mindset about sin that says, I once loved, or once loved it, but now I hate it. I once chased after my sin, but now I'm going to run after Christ. That is a complete transformation of the very control center of my life that leads to a changed life, a change of heart that leads to a change of life in reference to sin. Some people redefine repentance to make it simple penance. You grew up in a Roman Catholic church, you know about penance and confession. So okay, you did something bad, now you need to go pray some prayers, you need to do some good deeds to sort of balance the scales of justice. Understand this, repentance cannot and does not atone for sin. It's not that, okay, I've done bad things, so now I need to sort of bring this back up. The only thing that can atone for sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. If, if my repentance and my good works, if my tears could forever flow, could my zeal no longer alone, no, these for sin could not atone, thou must save and thou alone. Only the death of Jesus pays for sin. So repentance is not sort of payment that I make. Not at all. It's a change of heart about sin. Repentance is part of our response to the gospel. Which means this, in the Bible, repentance is, genuine repentance is inseparable from saving faith. 
So we get statements Jesus makes in Mark chapter 1. Repent and believe the gospel. Some people are like, well, is this sort of adding such a faith? No, it's part of genuine faith. The, the, the same hand that reaches out to take hold of Christ must let go of the sin to which it is holding, right? If I've got a bunch of sin in my hand, I can't take hold of Jesus. If I'm facing this way, I can't turn to face this way. Repentance is turning from sin, turning to Jesus. The repentance is the turning away. The trusting is the turning toward. And those both go together. By the way, that was in the passage Matthew, uh, Michael read. You know, let us forsake, you know, the wicked man must forsake his way and return to the Lord. There's two parts. There's the repentance, the turning away. And the turning to faith. So some passages of scripture, this is where people get confused. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and now shall be saved. Ah, no repentance. You don't need to repent to be saved. It is assumed that where genuine saving faith occurs in the Bible, repentance is there. You look at the Philippian jailer. He's obviously coming in. He's convicted of his sin. He's asking, what must I do to be saved? There is a readiness to run from sin. Or the thief on the cross. Oh, he doesn't, there's no mention of repentance. Yeah, but he's recognizing his sin. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. There's an acknowledgement of sin. There is a rejection of sin. So when the Bible mentions one, it assumes the other. So some passages, like uh, uh, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized. Oh, there's no faith mentioned there. What well, is assumed? Genuine repentance includes faith, and genuine faith includes repentance. They are two sides of the same coin. You think of heads and tails, right? You turn tails on sin, and you head to Jesus. That's repentance. That's faith. I'll add this as well. Biblical definition of repentance, we'll come back, circle back around to how it gets minimized, is the result of the Holy Spirit's working. Because some people say, well, that's a, that's a, you're adding works to the gospel by saying people need to repent and turn from sin. According to Acts 5, verse 31, and Acts 11, verse 18, it is a gift that God gives to us. It's not a work that I generate. Repentance is no more a work than faith is a work. It is simply the response I have to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, the passage that Ryan read to begin our service had the phrase, turn us, O God. You know, I can't even make myself, I love sin too much. I can't on my own change my own heart to where I don't love sin. It's a work that God must do in my heart. Psalm 80, verse 3, Psalm 80, verse 7 is an appeal for God. God, would you cause me to turn? It's a gift. It's a working of God. So what are some ways people redefine repentance? Not penance. Some people are, oh, it's just regret. It's feeling sorry. There's tons of people in our world who have regret over their sin but have not repented. You know Judas Iscariot felt great regret. It says in his regret he runs in the temple, throws the money down. He felt really bad about what he had done. But there was no turning from sin and turning to trust in Christ. It is not mere regret because you got caught. And, of course, some Christians, Bible-believing Christians, brothers in Christ, out of a well-intentioned desire to protect the purity of the gospel, faith alone, right, in Christ alone, say, well, got to take repentance out of the picture. So people like Jack Hiles or Curtis Hudson or the Sword of the Lord, even theologians like Charles Ryrie and Lewis Berry Schaefer have said, well, repentance, it's not part of the gospel. And if you preach that, you are adding works to the gospel. You're preaching a false gospel. You'll say that I'm preaching heresy this morning. Um, and by the way, those are brothers in Christ from everything I know. I'm not saying that they're, but I am saying that there is a redefinition and an enormous influence. Just log on to church websites and look at their definitions of the gospel. Admit you're a sinner and ask Jesus to save you. And that's it. No mention of, uh, of turning from sin. So under this new definition, only believe means simply assent to some basic facts. Just say, yes, I agree that I'm a sinner. and Jesus died for me and that's it for faith. 
Accept Jesus has replaced, take up the cross and follow me. Repent and believe has become, raise your hand and repeat after me. Beloved, that is not the gospel. Now, let me just say this. God the Holy Spirit is quite capable of taking incomplete messages and working in people's hearts. There's probably many of us who got genuinely saved with a message like the Holy Spirit was working in our hearts. We came to real repentance, even if it wasn't mentioned. I praise God for that. But don't we have a responsibility to preach the gospel as it is presented in Scripture, which is repent and believe? So repentance gets minimized, either by redirecting. There's other people who need to do it or redefining. Mm, it's not part of the gospel. Get rid of that. Talk about sin. By the way, what motivates that? I think it's the desire for easy, quick decisions. I've got to be able to go out door knocking and come back with a list of all these people who I had so many decisions that were made. Repentance kind of muddies that, and you're like, that's a big, that's a big ask, and people have to turn to Jesus and understand sin. I need something I can do in 30 seconds. Gospel doesn't work that way. It's not a sales pitch. It is the power of God. Which brings to our second point. I'll get off that hobby horse and move on to point two. Second perspective. So the first perspective on repentance, it gets minimized. That's, that's man's perspective. Get, get rid of it. It's uncomfortable. I don't like it. Second perspective is Jesus' perspective. And we, we, we jump now into the text. He answers this question in verse 3. I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then he adds a second example. What about the people on whom the tower fell? So verse, you know, the, the first situation, Pilate goes and kills people, you'd be like, okay, that's just human evil. But what about natural disasters, so-called acts of God? Aren't those judgments of God showing, man, those people in Siloam, you know, the tower falls. them. Obviously, that was God taking them out because they were really bad. Jesus is in both cases. No, disaster, tragedy, it happens in a fallen world. He recognizes, Jesus assumes what Genesis makes clear. We live in a fallen world, and because of sin, death has invaded God's world. Because death has invaded, suffering will ambush us when we expect it the least, and tragedies will often besiege us. And that's going to be the case until Jesus comes back and puts every enemy under his foot and drives the invaders out. Jesus assumes that to be the case. So don't assume tragedy is, you know, karma coming back around to get people or cosmic justice catching up with bad people. There are many, many wicked people in our world who live fat, dumb, and happy lives and go to their graves in peace. And there are many godly people like Job who are harried by trouble on every side. There are brothers and sisters in Christ in countries all around the world today who are being persecuted, who are suffering immensely for their faith. While there are ungodly, wicked people living... You know, in penthouses in Manhattan or all over the, the, the city of Mobile who will never experience much suffering in their lives. Suffering is, in and of itself is not a sign of a person's sinfulness. Jesus makes that very clear. Rather, what is Jesus saying here? He says, tragedies show us that life is short. Life is short. Nobody who went to work on September 11, 2001 was thinking, today a plane is going to come ramming through my building and unleash a fireball through here. Nobody was thinking that. Nobody who went shopping yesterday up in, in Buffalo, New York, was thinking some crazy white supremacist is going to come in here with, a, with, a, with big guns and start shooting people. N nobody thought that. Nobody has those thoughts go through their mind. Nobody who went down to the Siloam pool that day was thinking, hmm, where this tower is at the juncture of the wall is going to come crashing down and crush me to death. We don't think that way. Jesus is saying tragedy should awaken us to the fact that life is short, death is certain, and repentance is urgent. Yeah, I'll, do, I'll do that later. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying, but I'll, I'll do that later. I'll turn to Jesus later. We are not promised later. And so Jesus says, no, I tell you, unless you repent. So his audience, they want to soothe their consciences. 
with this thought that, well, those are bad people who need to repent. He says, no. You cannot soothe yourself with this notion of moral superiority or moral outrage. You need to examine yourself, not soothe yourself. As horrible as Pilate's violence was, as senseless as the tower, tower's collapse appeared, neither can compare to the terror of God's judgment against sin. That's what Jesus is saying. When he says perish, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Some commentators, as Jesus is saying to the people, you know, AD 70 is going to come, Titus and the Romans are going to come, you're all going to die. There's plenty of people in Jesus' audience who did not die violent deaths on the Temple Mount. What he means by perish is not just die physically, but you will one day face God Almighty. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is what we are talking about by perish. We are talking about facing God's wrath for all eternity in hell. When he says perish, is if you do not repent, you will all likewise perish. That is serious language. When tragedy strikes, God designs tragedy to be a call to repentance. Slashing swords on the Temple Mount, collapsing towers in Siloam, flying bullets in Buffalo are the summons of mercy to you and to me. You say, why does God use physical tragedy to awaken us to spiritual need? Seems harsh, because that's the only thing that will get our attention. John Piper put it beautifully well. He said, fallen human beings are oblivious to the magnitude of sin's outrage. God is so insignificant in the hearts of fallen people that they do not lose any sleep over the infinite outrage that holds sway every day in the world and every human heart where God is not the supreme treasure. In other words, we are so used to our sin, we don't think it's a big deal at all until something like this happens. And Jesus says it's a wake-up call. The wages of sin is death. The universality of death demonstrates the universality of sin, right? All sin falls short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And therefore demands the universality of repentance. Repentance is not, this call is not limited to a few extraordinarily bad individuals. People on death row. People who have bad things happen. No, no, no. It is to all of us. Unless ye repent, ye shall all, all likewise perish. Serious language. Let me put it this way. Suffering anywhere is a call everywhere to repentance. Suffering to anyone is a call to everyone. So rather than say, well, those people, do they deserve that? It's saying, no, 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 no. Have I repented? Am I repenting? Suffering and death remind us of sin's infinite seriousness and the enormous outrage of it against God. Do you see sin like that? And let me say to you Christians, exactly repentance and sin, and do you see sin as an enormous outrage against God? Do you see your sin as an infinite outrage against God? The place where it will come out is when you're, you're having a dispute with your spouse. Well, they started it, and they said this, so I'm justified in, in, in my sin over here, and I see my sin as little and their sin as big, when in reality I should see my sin as immensely big against a holy God. It changes the way that I treat other people. And this requires a constant cultivation of God awareness. God's holy. God's infinite. My sin is a big deal. Jesus says, if you do not repent, if you are not walking a life of repentance, you are on your way to hell. To be unrepentant is to be unconverted. 
Okay, this is not a, an add-on that we can come up around later. You're like, hey, I'll just, you know, I'll believe in Jesus now, and then later, then I'll sort of start thinking about repentance. Now, listen, re- repentance is a lifelong project, and we're ups and downs in it, but there is real repentance that kicks off the Christian life. To be unrepentant is to be unconverted. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying eternity is looming. Sin is serious. God is holy. Eternity is infinite. Hell is real. Repent. Turn to me with all of your hearts. The Apostle Paul put it this way on Mars Hill. God commands all men everywhere to repent. What a gracious offer. What a gracious invitation to whosoever will. We all must see our sin as an affront to God and we must run to Christ to save us. We hate our sin and we head to Christ in faith. Are you a repenter? It's been said that in Eastern Europe, after the Iron Curtain came down, pastors and missionaries began to finally get back in there. And in some of the churches, they, instead of referring to the Christians as Christians, they were called repenters. People who have repented, people who are repenting. Are you a repenter? Someone who follows Christ and learns to fight sin day after day. But a final perspective in verse 6 is... Repentance illustrated. Beginning in verse 6, we get this illustration of repentance. And I think this gives us sort of God's perspective on it. We get Jesus saying, urgency, repent. If we could put it simply, verses 1 to 5 are saying repent. Verses 6 to 9 are saying repent now. This is urgent. Time is short. Verses 1 to 5 are illustrating the need for individual repentance. Verses 6 to 9 are giving the illustration of national repentance. So look at verse 6. He spake also this parable. A certain man... Had a fig tree, planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig around it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, and if not, after that thou shalt cut it down. Gives us a parable, an illustration. So this precept is backed up by parable. We get a picture, an illustration of what this looks like. Now, why a fig tree? Why a vineyard? This is uh, this language about fig trees and vineyards uh, rooted deeply in the soil of the Old Testament. Israel's often pictured as a vineyard. You can see uh, Isaiah chapter five, where God says, "Israel, you're like a." A vine I planted, I built a vineyard, I built a wall around it, I protected it, I did everything that was necessary, and I come looking for fruit, and I only got wild grapes, and so God says, I'm going to judge. So this would have immediately connected. They're thinking Isaiah 7, they're thinking Hosea 9 and verse 10, and Joel 1 verse 7. These are images of Israel. These are pictures of the nation. And the fruit was a, a common image to say righteousness. God was looking for obedience, for righteousness, for the results of repentance. And where it's absent, what happens to the vineyard? The vineyard is cut down. What happens to the tree? It's cut down. Those are images of judgment. So the owner here, I think, pictures God. And that's what the Old Testament would sort of set us up to think. And what Jesus is saying is, Israel, if you reject me, you will face judgment just like you faced in the Old Testament. What happened in the Old Testament? Babylonians came in, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city. What happened in, after the time of Jesus? The Romans came in and destroyed the city, destroyed the temple. The same thing happens again. So verse 7, the, the landowner says to the dresser of his vineyard, the guy who takes care of it, the, the farmer, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? 
Three years is enough time. So the first year, you don't expect fruit on the tree. You Maybe you're plucking the, the blossoms and the buds off to try to get the roots deeper. Rachel's been doing that with the, with, with the plants in our yard. Second year, it's not reasonable. To, but the third year, you will expect to see fruit. If you're going to see fruit, it's going to start on the third year. It's like, this is taking up useful, useful space. I've got limited space. This tree is wasting the ground. And not only that, but it's sapping the nutrients out of the ground. They could go to some other tree that actually would be fruitful. So the logical, reasonable thing to do is, hey, cut the tree now. Let's start over. Israel must repent, right? That's what, what Jesus is saying. There needs to be national repentance, national turning to your Messiah, or you will be cut down by God's judgment and someone else will take your place in the vineyard. By the way, that's what ha- has happened. That's why you and, all, you and I have gotten in. We have been grafted into the wild olive tree. We have been put in this place to represent God to the world. So that's the owner's plan in this illustration. But notice the caretaker's patience. And I think here we get a little glimpse of the heart of our Savior. The answering said unto him, verse 8, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, and if not, cut it down. There, there, you can feel the pathos here. Now, this is sort of seems like an exaggeration, like no farmer would be that attached to a tree. We're seeing a glimpse of the heart of Jesus. He sees the rejection. He's going to experience the rejection of Israel and of his own people. And yet there is this patience, another year, another opportunity. His desire is to see this tree produce fruit. His desire is to see repentance in our lives. His plan, okay, we're going to dig around it, loosen the soil so the water can get down to the roots and it can get the nutrients it needs. We're going to put some, put some manure around it and, 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 and try to just enhance the, the nutrients it's receiving. What a stunning picture of God's grace and patience toward unrepentant Israel, toward unrepentant me. He doesn't just bring the hammer down, that's it, you had your chance, that's it. No, he gives us opportunity after opportunity. Even in the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation mentions repentance more than any other book in the New Testament. We often think the book of Revelation is God just sort of unleashing, you know, unleashing hell on the earth. But the book of Revelation is also God's final appeal to the world to repent. To the church, we can read about the seven churches, even where there's this, this wicked individual who, who is typologically like Jezebel, I gave her space to repent. Judgment begins to fall, and God says, you know, bring all this darkness and fire, and they repented not over and over again. God is a patient God. The end of Luke chapter 13, look down with me in verse 34. Hear the heart of Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have I gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings? And ye would not. Hear his heart. We hear the heart of Jesus, the longing of the Savior, calling sinners to repent. That is his grace. That is his mercy. That is his patience. So like this farmer, Jesus will dig down deeply into the soil of our hearts. Without pressing the details too far, maybe we could think of that, how he brings hardship into our lives to soften our hearts. He brings heartache. He leaves us empty. He draws us to himself. Don't lose sight of this. If repentance and fruitfulness comes to this tree, it's not because of anything good in the tree. It's because of the good in the farmer. It's his mercy. Do you ever find suffering has left you reeling in your life? That heartache has just left you devastated. 
Some people get angry at God, or you can see in that the mercy and the kindness of God that is bringing you to repentance through hardship, through pain, through the reminder that my sin is serious and I need need a Savior. Does your conscience gnaw at you? Do memories of recent sins weigh you down? Does the Spirit stir your heart to turn to Christ? Run to Him. Run to Jesus. We also see here in the heart, in the patience of the Savior in verse 9. He says, okay, I want to I fertilize it and bring the light and the water and all these things. And if it bear fruit, now notice the word well is in italics. It, it's left out. It, if it does this, and then we don't get the, the then clause that we would expect. That's why it's supplied here. And if not, cut it down. It, it's, it's just exuding emotion. If it bears fruit, and then the farmer's voice trails off a lump in his throat. And if indeed not, then cut it down. Now, in this story, we're not, verse 10 goes on to a new account. You notice we're not told whether or not the tree is fruitful, whether or not it gets cut down. It's because that last scene, we are meant to supply that. Right? We are meant to say, in my life, is there going to be repentance or is there not? If there is repentance, well, the, the tree becomes fruitful and it becomes a delight to its owner. And if not, it is cut down. It is judged. It is cast into the fire. Tells us there are two options. Beloved, there are only two options. There is contrition and there is destruction. There, there is repentance or there is wrath. That's it. There's not a middle ground where it's, oh, I'm kind of sort of. Either you're following Jesus or you're not. Either you're trusting him or you're trusting yourself. So the patience of the owner, the patience of the farmer is meant to bring about repentance. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Romans 2 and verse 4. Asks this question. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Here's what so many people do. They're saying, well, I get what you're saying about judgment, but no judgment has fallen on me. I get what you're saying about hell, but I'm still alive... And we begin to think that the delay of God's judgment means the cancellation of God's judgment. Do you realize what sin deserves is immediate judgment? What sin deserves is eternal wrath. Yet God in his kindness so often restrains it day after day after day after day. And then when he does bring the judgment, we get angry at him. The question we should be asking when tragedy strikes is, why has this happened? The question we should be asking is, why has this not happened? Because my sin deserves it. We read the Old Testament. We read about Uzzah putting his hand out to touch the Ark of the Covenant and immediately getting killed. We read about the, the, the household of Korah getting swallowed up in the ground. Or you can read about Ananias and Sapphira and getting immediately struck down. Man, what's wrong with God? What those are are glimpses of what holiness does, demands all the time and what grace withholds so much of the time. It's as if Jesus is saying, With one hand, God is extending mercy and grace, and with the other, he is withholding righteously deserved judgment. And what we need to come to grips with is one day both hands will drop. Are you a repenter? Has there been a time in your life where you have begun the journey of repentance? Where you've seen your sin as immensely serious, as an affront to a holy God? 
you've been convicted about it, where you have realized my sin deserves judgment, not just a reluctant find God's going to judge. No, this is what I deserve. Have you seen and embraced Jesus as the only solution to your sin, the one who died on the cross as your substitute, who was buried and indeed rose again? Have you put your confidence totally in him, transferred it from yourself, from your goodness, from your works? Have you rejected all notions of I'm better than other people and I, I don't really need, no, 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 I've got nothing. And I'm leaning on Jesus and him alone. Have you repented and believed? If you're a Christian, are you walking the life of repentance? Or have you kind of left that in the dust? Martin Luther put it well. He says, when our Lord and Master said repent, he intended that the life of the Christian be one of repentance. So tomorrow morning, what is the Christian life? It's going to be repentance. Sin that God brings to my attention that I confess and forsake and find mercy. And I grow in holiness and grace. You realize there's never going to be a day that you are ever beyond the need of repentance. The moment you get there, you have given into the sin of blindness and pride and self-righteousness. So where does the repentance need to happen in your life? The temporary suspension of sin's death sentence is a declaration of God's immense mercy. So we've seen that tragedy is God's mercy. We've seen that ease, God withholding the judgment, is also mercy. The question is, will you turn to him? Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and get this, and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God and he will abundantly...